here's the thing about fundraising. It's more than it's about like dollars and cents. It it really is about the operational process to get to that point, right? And so I think, do you need a million dollars? Yes, we know that, right? It's how do you activate teams and committees and staff and people to facilitate that and to make that happen? That's where we come in to kind of like, okay, here is the process by which you can be successful in this. I think as they're looking toward hiring a consultant, that's the other part of it. Like, can we afford to pay outside counsel? And can you afford not to? Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hello, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of the Creating Community for Good podcast. Have you ever considered a career as a fundraising consultant? What are the most critical transferable skills that you need? And why do I always talk about case leadership prospect plan? Well, I've often been asked what it's like to be in my shoes and how I landed here. For me, it's an opportunity to unite my intrinsic call to serve with my intellectual curiosity. Solving unique challenges and forging pathways to maximize for excellence and potential is really an adventure and a privilege. As an engineer tinkers, explores, discovers to innovate, improve, and solve, so do I. A book I've recently been reading is Adam Grant's Think Again. Books like this light me up in a way that nothing else does. I love to study social sciences, behavioral psychology, and the like. I thirst for ways to rediscover ancient wisdom and re-engineer ways of bringing people together through not only just the act of philanthropy, but also through the systems thinking, the creative problem solving, the resource sharing, and ultimately authentic being, showing up and being real. In this episode, a fellow consultant and dear friend of mine, Tiffany Williams, and I explore a day in the life as a consultant. In the interview, you'll hear challenges that we grapple with in terms of what clients will take and what we won't. How do we prioritize the assignments while opening up to the space of pressing current events and societal demands? And then ultimately, what techniques are we using to build trust? And why is that so important? Like me, Tiffany came into this profession rather by chance. And now, after working in the field for more than 10 years and helping tons of nonprofits raise nearly a billion dollars, no small feat, she has her own consulting firm, TJ Marie Consulting. Tiffany and Eric Heininger, another former guest, and I, we have a regular consultants gathering where the three of us hop on a Zoom or phone call once a month, and we usually pepper that with text throughout the week, most weeks. And we use each other as resources and sounding boards and comforts when we are going through change or chaos. I have to give Tiffany a lot of credit for that because we've had some very lighthearted and fun conversations. And we've also gotten into very heavy and serious dialogue as well. So hats off to her and Eric. And I'm just so grateful for this little cohort and team that has been developed over the years as actually Eric organized it three or four years ago as we all had left the powerhouse of CCS and started our own independent firms. So that's been a blessing and something that I'd recommend to anybody who is an entrepreneur or in the space of consulting is find some peers and gather. Tiffany is the CEO and founder of Gively 
a universal giving and stewarding platform designed to inspire and harness the philanthropic spirit among young donors. And that's pretty innovative. So check that out in addition to her consulting offerings. The highest benefit of hiring a consultant is building muscle memory. Most organizations hire consultants because they need to raise money and quickly. But what they often get in return is not only that the goal has been met, but the best practices are integrated long after the consultant has left. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind, with the intention to inform, inspire, and evolve. Let's go. The heart of this conversation is going to be all about consulting. And I want a little bit of that feeling pulling behind the curtains. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're considering joining consulting or you're considering hiring a consultant, what is it like behind the scenes and how do we operate? What motivates us? What are our strengths or weaknesses? What do you look for? What do you look out for? And that's that's kind of where I want this conversation to flow. <laughs> okay. What are the three most relevant transferable skills that you call on as a consultant? Oh, so at this period in my life, being a consultant and being an entrepreneur, though two different things, they are both very much a part of my professional world. And so sometimes they get they get intertwined. I will say if I had to choose three top characteristics or skills, it is probably one communication. And for me, that includes written communication, being responsive uh, via, you know, phone call, email, the ability to like sell, right? The ability to influence audiences and influence and storytell. Mm-hmm. And, and even now as an entrepreneur, like communication is, is, is now digital and social media and all of the above and podcasts and yeah. my YouTube channel and like all of those things. And so I would definitely say, you know, most of what I'm doing is communicating ideas, mm-hmm. resources knowledge, information. (laughs) I'd probably say another one for me is organization. I have, Mm -hmm. you know, I mostly have a roster of clients at any given time. And so organizing kind of what the needs are for each of them individually, as well as what the needs are of my practice and my business and my contractors, my employees, right? Uh, Keeping it all and, you know, invoicing and marketing and all that kind of great stuff, keeping it all together. So I'd probably say organization and I'd probably say the other skill would be grace at this oh. in 2020 and 2021 for sure. And, and that is grace uh, with my clients. They're most of them are working from home, working remotely. Their teams are remote. Their work is harder. It is more difficult to pull together their donors and supporters for various reasons. They have they have pivoted and they have restructured. And I think it is incumbent upon all of us to give each other, just as humans right now, a little grace. And so that extends to the client. And then I'd also say right now, it also extends to myself, <laughs> you know, and just the making sure that I'm creating some a little balance in my life. So And amongst the number of skills and characteristics right now, I'd probably say those are uh, three that stick out. Yeah. Communication, organization, and grace. I love that. So Tiffany, when you're talking with a client, what do you see as the most common challenge that they're facing? 
the most common challenge, I mean, like, you know, I'm a fundraising consultant, as are you. So, you know, if I were to ask my clients this or even prospective clients, they're like, well, we need to raise money. That's the challenge. We need yeah. money. We need money. We need money. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, What's and next so, to that? Like, why don't they have the money? What are the roadblocks? Exactly. So I'll say on the um, nonprofit, like, operational side of things, mm-hmm. I think that what they are looking for, what I see most often than not, is, like, structure and a plan to move forward with their plans, right? Like a well-conceived plan, fundraising plan, strategic plan. And they they want to know how to engage their supporters and their donors in the best way, right? And so I think that that is certainly something because here's the thing about fundraising. It's more than it's about like dollars and cents. It really is about the operational process to get to that point, right? And so I think, do, do you need a million dollars? Yes. It's, we know that, right? It's how do you activate teams and committees and staff and people to facilitate that and to make that happen? Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know where we come in to kind of like, okay, here is the process by which you can be successful in this. So I think that's, I keep saying like amongst other things, like that is one. I think as they're looking toward hiring a consultant, I'll say, and I don't know if this is your experience as well as an independent consultant, money, you know, the willingness to invest in (laughs) consulting and an external counsel, knowing that the benefit can be enormous. So I think that's the other part. Can we afford to pay outside counsel. And sometimes, you know, you're thinking, can you afford not to, mm-hmm. you know, can you afford to continue on the, on the path of the trajectory that you're currently on? And what is that going to look like in the long run? So. Yeah. Well, I go back to what's the ROI, what's the cost to raise a dollar and, you know, do you need a consultant every month for many years? Probably not. If so, then maybe you've got a structural challenge within your organization. Or I have actually started seeing some nonprofits where they do have contractors out who fill most of the roles. I'm not sure how effective that is when you know, really what we're trying to do is create stability in relationships. But I have seen that a you know, capital campaign consultant, feasibility study consultant, or board development, training, any of those one-off kind of engagements, they can extend your fundraising ability by 10x minimum. So yeah, you know, if we're doing a major push and a major change of course for a nonprofit, that's worth the investment. And I like how you said, you know, can you afford not to? I was really thinking about like, do you really want to grow, you know, inch by inch, or do you want somebody who can accelerate the growth, get some of the background stuff done for you, like the organization of the plan, for example? We used to talk a lot about case leadership prospect plans. So that's yes. the framing that I learned at CCS. So shout out yep. to them for that. I still use it regularly. I do, do you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hear, but, you, I hear you say it in your podcast all the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always like, yep, case leadership. I mean, like, that's just kind of, you know, that's our training. But that is how yeah. I tend to approach, especially campaigns. Right. Yeah. yeah. What's a roadblock that you face? in fundraising consulting? Have you ever seen a situation where you're like, this is a big nut to crack and I don't know how to handle it. So maybe you you figured it out, but like, what did you use in terms of tools that you called on to crack a really big challenge? Yeah. All right. So as I said, I've worked in every sector. Yes. <laughs> Just about. Um, 
I would probably say what is was always just kind of like a stark challenge was in the religious sector when mm. because it's hierarchical. And so, you know, oftentimes the organization will decide to undertake a major campaign, but that happens within the individual parishes, right? And so sometimes you have parishes who are on board and and they want to participate and you know there's always an incentive to do so for their own their own churches their own parishes and then you have those who do not <laughs> do not see it happening do not do not think that the parish or the church can raise the money that you know the goal that's been kind of established for them and that you know it's I've, I've done some like really big like diocesan campaigns and I'll say that when I hear folks, at the onset say like, oh, there's no way that our church could raise this amount of money, right? And I'm always just kind of like smiles to myself because I'm like, you you actually can, <laughs> you know, like you actually can. And like, the only reason why you don't think you can is because you haven't yet, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you can, and I'm going to show you how, and not only am I going to show you how, but I'm going to walk with you through this journey, right? And I think that Something like that, like the, you said, like, how did you like overcome it? Or, or in this situation, it's like, how do I anticipate that they overcome? How do I help them overcome it? Right. Yes. But I think it just is a matter of like, I've seen this before, <laughs> you know, I have experienced this before. Yeah. I have seen this before. I have confidence in you. And this is a part of the communications that we talked about earlier. Like, how can I communicate in a way that fosters trust, right? In the plan in my head. And the plan that's on this, on your own paper, but like, how do I get them to trust what I have to say and walk with me on this journey? And more oftentimes than not, people were pleasantly surprised at what <laughs> could happen. Do it. And like you say, you know, once you've, you know, there's this acute need for immediate funding or whatever, mm-hmm. but it strengthens the system long-term, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, oh, we actually need to have a tracking system and we actually need to have a case and we actually need to check in on a regular basis and meet benchmarks and ask for money. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do that. So I'd probably say that that's, that's an example. And it it got easier, you know, as time went on. Yeah, I I really echo what you're saying in terms of building systems for future success. I worked with a client who had never done major gifts before. And so we launched major gifts program through a capital campaign that integrated major gifts. Yes. Predominantly. Yes. And I loved it because we not only were doing training and orientation on the capital campaign, but by way of that, then each employee who was participating was then leveled up in terms of what can they then do going forward? How do they shift their mentality or thinking around special events or around mailers or around phonathons or whatever they're doing that's their fundraiser that was not integrating major gifts? How can they then start integrating it? And it's not just the mentality of, being ready to make an ask, but it's also the organizational structure. You know, how are you inviting, upgrading, retaining your donors? And through campaign work or through major gifts work or consulting work, there can be new strategies or techniques integrated so seamlessly that you don't even realize it's happened until the consultant leaves and the shop is operating at a 2x or 5x or 10x system right? Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I've seen that work really well as well. And that is, that's definitely something that gives me fuel and passion is seeing those success stories afterwards. 
Absolutely. I mean, that is like, you know, I say like, you know, I internally smile and I hear like, there's no way we can do that. And then I like, you know, internally smile again as I'm walking out the door, like, see, you did it. And then yeah. you know, they hear about, you know, something else that happens, you know, far along or, you know, down the line or to see the building go up that you help yeah. raise for, or, you know, that is a different level of like happiness, I think. Yeah. <laughs> to see What's your work it? made manifest. Yeah. What does spark your joy as a consultant? Is it the end results? Oh, that's a good question. Marie would spark joy. Oh yeah. Marie Kondo. It's like, does this outfit spark joy? Uh, right. <laughs> this book what spark, that's a good question though. What sparks my joy, spark joy as a consultant in this work? So I, so certainly like seeing the end result, like you, you yeah. know, obviously we like to see something happen as a result of the work that we put in. But I will say, I think it's like just building relationships with, with folks. I've, I have been so blessed to have worked with some truly amazing people that if not for the work that I do, I would not have been able to, to meet or to work with, right? I've made good friends. I've made amazing colleagues. You know, I've, I've been able to like travel all over helping, you know, nonprofits in, in different sectors and in different locations. And I think, you know, that for me is the piece. I get really emotional when I have to like leave a client, like mm. especially if I've been on site for a long time and I've worked with them, you know, because you, you build those relationships and just like you employ them to do with their donors and, you know, their supporters and their friends and their constituencies, like you do that, you know, we as consultants do that with them as well. And so yeah. to do that piece of it for me is I get joy from it. I feel the same way. I had a conversation where I said, you know, eventually I won't be here and you know, I'll set you up for success afterwards. I'll, I'll draft your letters and we'll get a whole plan, a continuation campaign plan. Yeah. And as I said that, I was like, I feel a little bit sad. <laughs> I'm a crier. So I, <laughs> I know it doesn't seem that way, but I do. I get, I get emotional <sighs> when I leave a client. So, <laughs> so As you and I are such relators, and I think that's probably been instrumental in creating great client relationships and long-lasting partnerships and business, right? So for me, my business is 100% repeat or referral. Now that I'm doing the podcasting and Clubhouse, I've actually started getting more inbound than I had as a referral because now these are new folks who've heard of me. Diversify, diversify. Thank you. Yes, yes. (laughs) Diversification is important. But I was going to say that my heart is really with the connection with the people. And so I'm wondering, how are you managing as we've now been in lockdown for about a year? I've, I have clients that I've literally never been in the same room with. Yes. And yeah, at first I was pretty concerned about it. Like, can I still build rapport? Can I still read the room? And I've found that it's not the same skill sets that I'm calling on, but there are others that are readily available to me that have popped up or shown up in a way that I didn't know I had or that, that were available. Yeah. Like what, Lindsay? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, this is my interview. (laughs) I should have guessed that that would get turned on me if I'm making a statement like that. You know, I think that it's actually been holding the space for casual chat, just like you would in a hallway. So if I was walking into a board meeting and I bump into one or two of the, the folks at the water fountain, or as I'm getting my seat, there was a a rapport that was built. So now, since we don't have that opportunity for the one-on-one rapport, I actually try to hold some space on my agendas. When it's not a a serious board meeting, we don't really have a lot of time for that. But if it's a weekly check-in with staff, then I will do like a 
five to even 15 minutes of just connecting and what's going on in your world, what's happening in the space of whether it's the news or, you know, truthfully, a lot of joking about presenting on camera. Like, have you started using filters on your Zoom or how do you handle, you know, for me, I'm wearing a headband today so that you know, nobody can tell that maybe I didn't shampoo my hair this morning. <laughs> and so kind of laughing about like the nuances of being a human during shelter in place. Or talking about, you know, just have you considered traveling or how is your family? Or, you know, some of us have lost people in our lives during this time. Many of us have, right? So if not death, then a lot of mental health issues and holding a space for the human connection has actually created a very deep relationship with a number of my clients that I didn't anticipate and perhaps even deeper than if we were in person. Good. Upon reflection. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not yeah. with each of the board members because it's hard. That's it's hard. hard. Nobody wants to be stuck in nine hour days of Zoom meetings. So if you can cut back from an hour meeting down to 45 or even 50, I think that's when you're winning a lot of praise as opposed yeah. to chit chatting and then having it go over five or 10 minutes. I think that's where people yeah. are really starting to feel that fatigue. Yeah. What about you? How are you feeling like, yeah. are you connecting with your clients? Do you feel lonely? I mean... What's the experience so, in terms of service delivery? Yeah, so it's, and it's definitely different, obviously, like for everybody, right? And mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about is like bringing this human authenticity to the work, right? Yeah. You know, the reality is we all are in a different space right now. And I definitely believe being real about what it looks like to be having, you know, running your business or running your organization through Zoom mostly. But one of the things that I think is has been important for me and I try to, you know, think about and reflect on is we essentially have to do what we ask our clients to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it is like, okay, acknowledging what is real and what is true today and then working within that to maximize your opportunity for a desired outcome. And so I think as I ask them to do that, I'm trying to do that. So mm. it is recognizing that, <laughs> you know, it's just going to be on Zoom right now <laughs> and bringing that human element to it. And then as we think about, as I have thought about like what that means in terms of the practice, we are asking them to pivot and to think about things differently. Like we have to do that too. We're asking them to kind of like diversify their sources and their methods. Mm-hmm. Then we're doing that too as well. So, so for me, that looks like diversifying my offerings as a consultant and making sure that, you know, there are digital platforms and making sure that there are ways to engage that speak to the moment but then also allow us to maximize the desired outcome. Lonely. So lonely to me is I'm an introvert. (laughs) And so I probably am doing better than an extrovert would be doing Mm -hmm. during this time. But there certainly have been periods of time where I'm like, I can no longer look at these walls. I live alone, you know, some family, you know, or anything like that. And so it's just me and the dog. <laughs> and, and so most specifically, like around May of last year, I was like, this is, I, I gotta go. I'm gonna yeah. go crazy looking at the walls. And so I like packed up and drove 13 hours to Mississippi to like, you know, be with my family. And then I was away over the Christmas break or holiday. I don't know. Do we break? <laughs> So, oh, it's no real okay. break, but I was, but I was there for a while. So I, I feel like I 
recognize the moments when I feel lonely or alone and and, and I try to do something about it. Right. And, yeah. and so, yes, it has definitely been a shift. It has definitely been different. I think we're all like longing for this to be over. But as I say, like I've, I've tried to make the best out of it. And I try to acknowledge that like it hasn't made me insane to a point of like I can't get things done just because, you know, I'm an introvert. <laughs> so being alone for me doesn't freak me out. So. Yeah. Yeah. If you could paint your ideal client, what would mm-hmm. it look like? Ooh, let me think about who are my current clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So I'll say an ideal client is number one, a client that knows that it wants outside counsel. Okay. Right? So like, they're committed. Like, they're in. There's no waffling. In. We need somebody to do something and we are welcoming and listening and open to the change that it might create here. Yep. I think that is probably the biggest thing. I, and early on, when I first started my practice, there was like, somebody would say, oh, this organization is looking for a consultant or open to hearing from a consultant. Yeah. And then it was like me, like trying to convince them that yes, that is what you need. And I have realized now that that is not something that I'm interested in doing. And so that's why I say like the ideal client knows that they want a consultant. It is difficult to try to convince folks that that's what they need. And so I just find it a little better of a relationship and as an engagement, if, if that part of it is settled, right. Yeah. Yeah. My mom always says, go through the door that is open. Open. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Instead of like trying to craft it in, yeah. in the wall. So that is that obviously clients who, you know, like it's, it's great if, you, if the client already has like some infrastructure in place and like a team who's, you know, that type of thing. It just kind of depends on what we're doing. I probably, I don't have a, a favorite sector and people always say like, you've worked in all the sectors. Do you have a favorite sector? I don't think I do. I will say I have not worked in animal sector. And as a dog lover, that is surprising. I should go try to find a shelter or something. But yeah, I don't think I have a favorite sector. You know, people who are good. I, you know, thankfully, I've been able to work with nonprofits for whom I share an affinity for their Mm. causes. I think that is important to me. You know, if I can look at your case or I can look at your mission and I can feel some type of personal connection to it, I think that's a good thing. Are there any non-negotiables? Are there any clients you're like, Mm-mm, I will not work with that client? Oh, that's a good question, Lindsay. So I won't work with clients that have in practice or in theory who discriminate against marginalized communities mm. in theory and in practice or in practice. Either of those things. Either of the two. Either of those things. I, I, was really conflicted with a client before, and this is like earlier on, and I really struggled with a practice that they employed. And I vowed that I would no longer be subject to to that conflict and Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't participate in furthering it. We had a conversation the day that this is being recorded. We also hosted yep. a clubhouse together where we yes. talked about DEI and BIPOC. And mm-hmm. we said, yes, it's great to have a statement, but even more so than a statement, it's a culture Absolutely. of inclusion and diversity. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying in terms of you know, they've mm-hmm. either got that, they've got it or they don't. They've got the, the spirit, the energy, the structure. It's being important in mm-hmm. our working or no, actively working to engage in a way that could be tangible. 
you ever find that now this is a little bit of a tangent, but just to get okay. a little challenge or a, an opportunity for conversation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found that there is a campaign that it becomes usurped by other priorities? Right. So, okay, wait, <laughs> as I frame this, I'm like, yeah, basically anything in 2020, that's a yes. <laughs> but even now today too, I'm thinking beyond that, like, what if there is, there's a campaign and mm-hmm. then there's so much feedback coming from the community that they're really interested in something different than what the campaign is focused on, but the campaign okay. is really needed mm-hmm. in order to move the organization better. So, you know, my perspective is always, what do we need to serve the greatest good? How can we demonstrate the greatest good or be of service to our community in the most powerful way? And if there are some less attractive elements that must get done, then mm-hmm. we still have to figure out a way to rally around those so that then we can have the luxury of adding in the nice-to-haves or the, the perspectives of the community. Mm-hmm. That's one angle. Now, then mm-hmm. there's the other angle. It's, you know, the donors and the constituents of the beneficiary, if they have a strong rallying cry to bring in something different, either add it to the campaign or just change the campaign entirely, then you've got a little bit of push and pull. And you got to think yeah. about, you know, is the tail wagging the dog or are we not listening? You know, it, it, there's sort of two sides of that coin. What's your take so, on that? I'll say this. One, it should not be a surprise. Uh-huh. Right? It should not come as a surprise to an organization that they are within you know, some part of a, of a campaign and, and they realize that their donors or constituents are looking for something else, right? Okay. So even like when that came out of my mouth, like their donors are looking for something else. Like the mission is the mission, right? And I think sometimes you got to say, regardless of what the donor would like to happen, the reality is this is where we're going in terms of the organization or this is what needs to be fun. These are our priorities. So that's kind of, Let's put that in a box and put it to the left. Okay. On the right, this is why I always say you should do a feasibility study. <laughs> and I know people have different opinions about feasibility studies and whether or not they are necessary, right? Like, is this thing to do necessary? I have been in an organization that did not do a feasibility study. And so two years later, I walk in the door and I'm like, none of this is going to work. Had the study been done, we would have been able to create the right and appropriate messaging. We would have been able to right-size the campaign goal. We would have Mm. been able to determine what the case elements and the priorities were amongst the donors. We would have Mm. been able to determine whether or not the donor you thought was going to give the cornerstone gift actually had interest in supporting, you know, the campaign cause. And so it should not come as a surprise if the organization had done the feasibility study. (laughs) So I think they're just so necessary. And I hope that like answers the question. Yeah, it it does. And I want to take it another step forward because I cannot agree with you more about a feasibility study. And I also think it's an excellent cultivation tool for your donors. Absolutely. Excellent soliciting their feedback, their guidance, their participation, and then inviting them to join in, in the campaign or the fundraiser. It's, it's like a, it's a no-brainer in terms of how it feels on the other side as a donor, you know, to feel really engaged and, and, and desired in terms of their thoughts much more than just their dollars. Mm-hmm. So totally agree with that. Now I want to go to the next step, which is COVID. And not only COVID, but also all of the craziness that happened in 2020. And since we were just talking about DEI and there's, you know, the conversation has been going 
for a long time, for decades, yeah. right? And yeah. the, the issues have persisted since, you know, almost the beginning of time. Yeah. Now that we are in the state where we are, where there is so much public awareness and demand from people in power to actually make changes. Mm-hmm. And my question is, how do you approach a campaign where the community is saying, we need to shift our focus and integrate DEI elements. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to use that as the coverall. So I'm not going to get too much in a tangent in terms of like yeah. all the nuances, but that's going to be our, our phrase. Okay. And well, how do you address that? Because uh, I think that that's been an interesting opportunity because we do want to integrate it, but we also don't want to diverge the focus of the project. What do you think? I think specific to campaign, it's, it's a difficult, you know, concept because like, does the campaign, like, if the two are not related, like, are you building a building and you want to focus on DEI? Exactly, yeah. you, That's like, exactly you know, the example. The endowment and you want to focus on yes. DEI. And, you know, listen, if you're not watching this on Lindsay's YouTube or something and you're just listening to the podcast, I'm a black woman. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> yeah, and no, so, thanks for saying that. I'm never going to say like, well, put the ideas of diversity and equity to the side, finish up this thing over here and then get back to it. Like the time for justice is always now. Uh-huh. And so I think that if DEI initiatives, if those things are important to an organization, I think they should be intentional about addressing them, right? Mm. And I don't think that there, it's, um, you know, something you can pick up and put down because down the line, there will be other priorities of the organization. And so if the organization is saying like, we are going to pick this up right now and then we'll get back to that over there, that means that eventually mm-hmm. you're going to put down DEI. Mm-hmm. Right. It is not, it is an ongoing doing an ongoing learning. It should be an integration into practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not something that, that an organization can focus on for a couple of months and then kind of like move on from. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, that has been a part of the issue. Like, we, you know, something happens and we all pick up the mantle and then like other things come along and then we put yeah. it back down until those systems, are, you know, persist and, you know, they continue. But it is for an organization, if they were to ask that question, I would say, how long do you want to do the DEI stuff? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and at what point, like at what point have you achieved what you, what you'd like to achieve and, and would be willing to then focus your attention on something else. It is, it is constant. This work that we do is, is constant. I don't get to pick up discrimination when it's convenient to me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get to say, you know what? Don't want to hear any stuff this month. Yeah, (laughs) I got other priorities. Uh, You know, I don't get to choose. I don't get to make that choice. And and so it is ongoing. And I would say it should be viewed as an ongoing integration. I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) Good. And I think one of the ways, you know, just to get into some, you know, brass tacks for those who might be listening and they're saying, that's great. Now, now what do I do? You know, an action step I've seen work well is a committee dedicated to exactly that. We don't need to make the changes overnight. We need to have a conversation and hear the voices of what are our obstacles as an organization? What are our ideals? What are our values? What are our non-negotiables? And then what are some ways that we can start integrating or changing? So I do like the idea of a committee and I do like the idea of setting aside funds to be able to activate that. 
And yeah, I think that there are some wonderful consultants out there that are really focused on that. That's not my area of expertise, but I would also encourage nonprofits to seek that out if that's something that they have budget and openness towards. Absolutely. My little sister, actually, she has a, a consulting firm and she's working with nonprofits right now on DEI stuff, Red Tree Strategy. Oh, what is it called? Red Tree Strategies. Okay. So. Well, that's great. <laughs> she's a, she's an attorney in the DC area and, and she's working with some really great organizations that are, you know, looking and holding a mirror, and, you know, to their right. own practices and, and, and having these conversations and discussions. If you uh, recognize as, as a nonprofit, as you know, that this is something your organization should think about and, and focus on, then find somebody to, to help. Awesome. Thank you. So what's a piece of advice that you can offer to anybody who's listening about fundraising as a consultant? Always be learning. Yes. <laughs> All right. Learner's mindset. Beginner's mindset. Yeah. Always be learning. Like we have started doing some executive search. And one of my favorite interview questions is what was the last thing you learned? Ooh, I love that. Thing you learned. So I'm actually, I got some interviews coming up next week. So if anybody, if anybody's on that interview list, now listen. Uh, you know, but I'm going to ask that question. So it is important because I think that like, you know, once you've done this, like you and I have both raised hundreds of millions, a billion dollars, yep. right? Yeah. <laughs> Two billion between us. And yep. so I do think that, you know, you can really kind of take that, take that puzzle and keep putting together the same puzzle and taking it apart and putting it back together. Things <laughs> yeah, change. Learn something new and, every time. And things, yeah. And things the climate are, changes. I think the that's the biggest changes. change. Things are new. Yeah. You know, like there are new tools, there are new yeah. resources, there are new ideas. Yeah. And I think that especially if you are doing this work for other organizations as a consultant and, and what they want you to bring is the latest, greatest stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> or like they want you to bring a different perspective or they want you to have knowledge of the current climate, right? And so you can only do that if you are are conscious about consistently learning. And I think that's something that I probably say is key to this work. So what is the last thing that you learned recently? Oh, so the, <laughs> look at you. <laughs> All right. So the last thing that I learned was about a new platform for virtual events. Nice. Uh, I actually like facilitated a conversation for a former client who like hosted a webinar and it was all about learnings from virtual events. And so I learned about the different tools and resources that organizations that have been successful have used. And so, yeah, I've got like a whole little list of them now and I've been like, you know, looking through them. I want to be able to offer that to, to clients who are thinking about hosting a virtual event. And I have already offered that to a couple of clients. And so that is probably the the thing that sticks up as my most recent learning. That's good. Yeah, I've been learning about that as well. And I wanted to shout out to one of my recent podcast guests, Dana Snyder, because that's her powerhouse. And she's got a lot of resources online and in the podcast that the interview that we've done. So um, go look her up. (laughs) There's another resource. (laughs) Yeah. So as we wrap up, I like to ask all my guests two final questions. One is what gives you hope? And then two is using the platform of creating community for good podcasts, what's one thing you want to shine light on or give a, give a spotlight to either a person, an idea or a organization, some kind of shout out. So one, what gives me hope? I'll say it is 
it is the constant work of evaluation and trying to get to a place of like creating a more perfect union amongst imperfect humans. Mm -hmm. Um, It gives me hope that conversations like the tough one we have this morning Mm -hmm. are happening, that people are being vulnerable in spaces, that people are trying to find and create solutions to address Mm -hmm. some of the systemic issues, that people have not, from what I can tell, grown weary to the point of like putting down the these causes and I hope that these conversations do continue like they think I think they're necessary not only like the conversations but the actions the doings the holding mm. accountable and so that it gives me it gives me some some piece of hope I think that as a, a person who has studied history who is interested in history it is sometimes just very disheartening to see like oh we are literally doing the same thing that they were doing and that my ancestors were doing and then that, you know, like, and it is disheartening. And so I, mm. I think there are little glimpses and glimmers of hope in conversations like the one we have. So yeah. thanks for holding that space, Lindsay, for convening that space. Oh, my so pleasure. That, Thank you for being my partner in that. <laughs> there you go. All right. And then one thing that I would like to highlight is I am from Mississippi and I have lived in a number of places, but Mississippi is always home. And in Jackson, Mississippi, there are people that are still without like clean water from the storms that happened weeks ago. I know there was a lot of news coverage on Texas and it absolutely very warranted news coverage and -hmm. and a spotlight there. But I also want to make sure that Jackson, Mississippi doesn't get left out of that conversation. Okay, And there are still people there who primarily like is, you know, the case a lot in black and brown communities Mm -hmm. that have not yet recovered with clean water and consistent electricity. And so if you want and are looking for something to support, uh, there are tons of organizations on the ground doing work in Jackson, Mississippi, look it up. And uh, I just want the world to know that I want the folks in Jackson to know that the world has not forgotten about them. And especially the the Mississippi natives who have gone on to other places. We're still thinking about Mississippi. Mm, Well said. Thank you for saying that. So how can our audience find you? What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah. So Tiffany Williams, T-J Marie, M-A-R-I-E, consulting on all the channels. (laughs) 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 On on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. And then on Clubhouse. And now, and all the house, and then Ghibli app at Ghibli app on all the channels. So, yes, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, and Ghibli.com, tjmarie.com, um, and Ghibli spelled G I B L Y. And so, I'm easy to find, I'm all over the place, and yes, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. So. You're a very engaged woman, <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I think that's what keeps you relevant. and fresh and dynamic and bring your best to your clients and, and bring your best to me as a friend. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, your friendship means a lot to me. And so does this interview. Thank you for spending the hour with me in the community and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. You have a great day as well. Okay. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode with Tiffany Williams about creating community for good and what it's like to be an independent consultant. If you like what you heard, let me know. Send me a message on LinkedIn or write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe, rate it, and review it. If you're curious about a topic or you'd like to be a guest, let's connect. Please go to www.creatingcommunityforgood.com to learn more about 
what topics have already been covered and where I'd like to go in the future. Be well. Thank you. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.